Good morning to everyone, and Happy New Year. As uh, Charlie said, we're beginning a new series this morning called Your Difficult or Your Tough Questions for God. And what makes them your questions is that for the last year, from time to time, we have handed out these cards and asked you to turn back questions you would like to hear addressed here on a Sunday morning. And so uh, then we just took those questions and sorted them into piles and just took the four thickest stacks and made the series out of it. So there's some of these questions, believe me, I, I would have loved to have skipped, but uh, since you asked them so often, we're, we're going to do it. And uh, here it is. So here's the first question. There's several phrasings of this. We will eventually read them all. If God is so loving, then why are so many people in the world suffering? Why does he let this happen? How can he let this happen? So to my left here, we have a wall, the worship team called it the wall of evil. So this is uh, a lot of sin and suffering, war, addiction, crime, torture, religious abuse, corporate rip-off, starvation, child abuse. It, we've got quite a lot up here, and we truthfully could have done more. And so the question comes, uh, if God is good and loving, how were we so quickly able to come up with a brainstorm list? I think it took five minutes to come up with all of that. Now, you, you do already know this, but I, but I want to say, you, you know that I will not be able to give an answer this morning that, that once and for all resolves this and satisfies everyone. This is one of the oldest, most difficult questions of the Christian faith, and if there were such an answer that would make everyone walk out and go, oh, okay, I, I'm over it, that explains it. If there were such an answer as that, you, you would have already heard it from somebody much smarter than me. But we're going to tackle this because I think there is a lot that we can say about this question. There's, I think we, there's enough to say that a reasonable and an intelligent and an intellectually honest person could still arrive at the conclusion that God is loving and worth trusting even though all this exists in the world. And that's good enough. I think we can say enough to allow some of you to get there. So this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Here's another phrasing of the same question. As much faith as I have, I wonder how it's possible that God allows the devil to do such terrible things in the world like rape and murder and, and infants dying of terminal illness, I think as it finishes. So here's a person who has faith. This is not an atheist asking this question as kind of, aha, I got you, I told you there was no God. This is a person who has faith, but even with all the faith they have, they still can't imagine how this can be. They're even willing to let God off the hook for all this stuff. And the question, they say, okay, if the devil causes it all, but I still can't understand how, why God would allow the devil to cause all these sorts of things in their question. So to answer this question, there are different answers uh, dependent on the type of evil we're talking about. So the first thing we're going to do this morning is we're going to separate and sort our, our wall of evil over here a little bit uh, into two categories, moral evil and natural evil. I think, actually, if you look at this pile, everything from here over is actually things that humans do to each other. These are not things that are technically acts of God. They don't occur naturally in nature. Uh, these are things based on human decisions. Not to love God and not to love others. 
And so we call this pile over here moral evil, and the answer for why God allows moral evil to exist must always be free will. And many of you, as we're going to see, knew that was coming before we said it. Free will. When God made human beings, he made us as beings he could love, but who also would have the unique ability to love him back. And that ability to love must, by the definition of love, come with a choice. You know, imagine if we had someone, we said, we've got a new teacher of the year. We're giving out this teacher of the year because this teacher's students never talk and never get out of their seats. She has that much you know, command over her students. And we went and watched her classroom. And what we found is that when they arrived each morning, she took out a roll of duct tape and she taped them down to the chairs and she gagged them with a rag and put a little black cloth over all their heads. And then she praised them all day long for being such good and quiet students who never left their seat. We wouldn't find that person to be teacher of the year. We think that's a psychopath. You gotta take their license. That's not a good and loving teacher. She took away all the choices. These kids can't get out of their seats and they can't talk because she's bound and gagged them. These results, this moral evil is a result when humans have the choice to love God and love others and choose not to, which someone anticipated and so they asked this question. Well, then why didn't God make everyone love him? It would make a much more smoothly running universe if God would make people love him. It's a fair question, but I hope you see that that wouldn't be love. God can do anything. We grant him that power in our Christian faith. God can do anything, but he can't do nonsense. God can't make light that's really darkness. God can't make a heavy thing that's actually weightless. And God can't make for us a love that's forced and required and built in and automatic. He gave us the ability to love, so he gave us the ability to choose to do loving things, and therefore we must also, for it to be real, have the ability to choose not to do loving things. And sometimes those choices run into extreme, extreme consequences. Which is why someone asked me, not on a card, but in person, a good question. Well, then why didn't God at least place some limits on how extreme all that lack of love could get? Why does it have to run all the way to war and torture? Why didn't he just make some limits for it? It's a fair question, but I, I have to ask you, how do you think that would work in a real universe? Do we imagine that the Nazis would be sitting around saying, have you ever noticed that we can shoot old people and we can shoot middle-aged people. Oh, I know what you're going to say. Every time you shoot at a kid, the bullets curve away. As if there's some strange magic protecting them. Yeah. But as soon as they turn 22, you can put them down again. What would that be like to have limits placed on our choice? You know what we would then have? Uh, one writer suggested, why didn't God make it where every time you had a, a thought about harming a child, the thought just disintegrated in your brain before you even realized you had it? We would be left then with the unexplainable death of 22-year-olds. 
we would just cry out to God, why do you allow the death of 22-year-olds? They're so young and innocent, and their life's just starting out. They've never had to face death before, and now, and now you allow this hardship in creation. We would only complain about whatever was the worst evil we could think of. In fact, that's all we're doing now is complaining about the worst evil we can think of. Because if you ever notice, sometimes in movies, they actually will come up with evil that's worse than things that can actually happen. Like spy movies, they'll say, okay, now James Bond, we're going to torture you, but we're going to give you a chemical so that you don't pass out from the pain, so you feel it all for the whole time. No, that doesn't, can't really happen, but in movies it can. There's even worse horrors that we can imagine, which evidently God has already kind of blocked out. So you see, if, we, if God placed limits, we would say, you know, why did you allow the existence of handguns? Okay, so he takes them away. Well, why did you allow the existence of bows and arrows? Okay, so he takes them away. Well, why did you make it where we could ball up our fists and bludgeon one another and poison each other and, until finally all these limits are so far back that now we don't have any choices. We become docile robots who can neither love nor hate but only run on the program that we're given. Someone anticipated that I was going to say that and so kind of wrote this question to meet me there. Um, I've noticed when asking spiritual people why do bad things happen to the good and innocent and the helpless, typically the answer is something like bad things are attributed to people and the devil that, that caused them and good things are always attributed to God. It seems an unlikely or a convenient response. So what do you say? Good, good catch, got me. Um, and I will say again, for moral evil, which I think is 80% or more of the suffering that humans face in creation, I, I do attribute these things to people. God did not invent concentration camps. God does not participate in home invasions. God did not fake power outages in California to drive up the cost of electricity so poor people couldn't afford heating and air anymore. People did those things. And if you ask why God, <coughs> excuse me, allowed people to do those things, the answer is always comes back because he gave us the ability to actually love, and with that comes then the ability not to. If our free will is truly a gift that's ours to use, it has to come with it, the ability to misuse it. He could take it away, but we cease to be human at that moment. Here's one thing we learn about God from this question. It seems to be that for God, making us beings who can love was worth the risk even of the bad we do with it. While we may not agree it was worth the risk, to God it was worth the risk to make us beings who were capable of loving him and loving each other, even though we would do this kind of stuff with it also. Now, the person who asked that question, though, that says, well, that's an awfully convenient answer to pin it on people. They, they are right if I used that answer to explain the entire pile. So it's time now to address this. So yes, I have unapologetically pinned all of this on human sin based in the free will God's given us. But that answer falls short if I try to apply it to this stuff. This is natural evil. Even on your insurance forms, they call it acts of God. And we know insurance companies are right because they study this stuff, man. They're not going to... They know whose fault it is and who's going to pay a higher premium for it. So, 
Natural evil, yes. Too convenient if I try to do that with that. Although, you know what? I'm not sure all this is as much acts of God uh, as we think. Um, I still think that we can sort this pile down a little bit. AIDS. We know the millions of people who are dying of AIDS in Africa right now, but we also know that a great deal of the epidemic part of AIDS is caused by uh, human behavior. Uh, uh, Well, I don't need to list the human behaviors, but particularly behaviors in wars and things that are going on right now are causing it to spread rapidly. So a lot of what's making this so horrible still belongs on the human evil pile. But because babies can be born with AIDS and accidents can happen in hospitals, it's not all people. Some of it needs to stay up here with God. Accidents. Uh, Our congregation has lost two people this year in car accidents, and it's very, very sad. Uh, Yet I also know of all the accidents that are happening while we're sitting here in worship this morning, 25% of them are happening because we're messing around on our phones. And, and we're applying lipstick, and we're reading, and watching television, while, you know, and all this stuff that the moment someone is hurt, we'll say, oh my gosh, what was I doing? That was not worth it. So even a lot of accidents uh, belong to human evil and our just refusal to slow down and do what we're supposed to be doing. But not all, not all accidents, so some is going to stay up here. Starvation, well, surely weather is the main factor when people starve, but... Not really if you study it. The main thing that seems to cause people to starve is war. People always starve wherever there is a war. And the fact is, even if it was just the weather, at least now in our world, we have enough food on the planet at any given moment to feed everybody twice what they need. We just choose not to. State of Iowa right now is dotted with silos full of grain no one will ever eat. We grew it. And we dumped it there to drive up the cost, and there it will sit and rot. You can't, you can't pin that on God. That belongs back here as a moral evil. But not all of it. There's other reasons people starve. Dis- uh, natural disasters. Okay, this has got to be an act of God, right? Mm. Well, we remember Hurricane Katrina. And I remember that they knew that New Orleans was going to flood like that for decades, decades. Knew the changes that needed to be made. They'd been recommended by everybody, and the changes were not made. Too cheap. My dark side says somebody did an assessment and noticed it was only going to flood the, let's call it, low-priority parts of town anyway. We have enough technology and money to put a tsunami warning system on every island, nation, and beach in the world to at least curb some of the suffering. We don't. Too cheap. Not highly motivated enough. So a lot of the suffering that goes with natural disasters, I still think, goes with moral evil. But we didn't invent tsunamis and that sort of stuff, so some of it must stay up here. Birth defects. I still don't think you can pin all this with God. Not with all the weird stuff we put in food now. Um, I had a friend who was a scientist for the Food and Drug Administration, and we don't have time this morning. You don't want to know her stories about why stuff ends up in your food, but it's uh, not God's fault, I'll tell you that. Soil, air, water pollution, all over here. But not all birth defects are caused by those things. Some are just chance. 
They belong here. Diseases, I could talk about preventable diseases and stuff, but you know, we didn't make the diseases in the begin with, so just so we can have some big boxes up here for God to answer for, let's leave one. And then predators and, pre I mean, you watch these nature shows and what lions do to baby elephants and polar bears falling through the, it's horrible. That stuff would be rated R if it was happening to people, but it's animals, so. But anyways, it's wicked, it's sad. Oh my gosh, my kids cry. I forget, you know, that's evil. Okay, now we have the, the truly natural evil. I think we've sorted it back now to what's answerable to God. So now the question is, I think, very, very valid, and there's still enough suffering in this pile, although we've made it a lot smaller. There's still enough suffering here for hundreds of millions of people to feel great anguish. And uh, the question still stands, so here it is. How does God justify being a loving God when he allows so much carnage in the world. Only just now do we have the right question, and so here's where our work begins. I want to quickly run through some solutions that other religions have tried. Have you ever noticed Buddhists don't get asked this? Because it's built into their religion not to have to answer this question. It's really only the Christian faith that puts ourselves in the position of having to answer for this. And here's why. Because the Christian faith insists on holding three beliefs all into one arm load. And that is that God is loving. And you'll notice every single one of these questions uses that word. If God is loving, dot, dot, dot. God is loving, okay? God is all powerful. Some of the questions said, how does he allow and then we have this third one, evil exists. And when you put these side by side, God is loving, God is all-powerful, and evil exists, clearly one of these things is not like the other and doesn't fit. One of these things denies two of the others every single time. So some world religions have said, well, the answer is that God is not loving. If you remove that, it's quite easy. God is all-powerful and evil exists. And although it upsets us when humans die, we need to realize that humans are something like pond scum to God. When God kills people, it just doesn't mean as much to him as we wish it did. And this is some world religions. Unfortunately, the Christian faith will not let us answer this question that way because it continually tells us God is loving. God is all loving. Okay. Some world religions, particularly ancient world religions, said, well, gods are not all powerful. Some of them may in fact be loving, and we know evil exists, but they can't do anything about it, and especially when there are many gods and they fight against each other and some are good and some are bad. They're just not all powerful. They would love to have maybe change things, but they can't. All the gods of Egypt and were afraid of the ocean. So they were just powerless against these things. But the Christian faith won't let us do that because it's part of this belief that there is one true God who is all-powerful and makes all things. So we have to keep that one here. Now, a lot of Eastern philosophies have done away with the question by saying, well, evil doesn't exist. That is your problem. The creator is all-loving and all-powerful, but everything he creates is part of it, even starvation. If you will become enlightened in your philosophy, you will realize that even this is just a part of the universe and part of the all-powerful, loving God, and it all fits right in. Christianity just doesn't let us do that because it continually talks about disease and death and things like that as enemies of God that will be defeated and removed. 
So because of our beliefs, we find ourselves stuck with these three all in one arm load and they don't fit. God is all loving and God is all powerful and evil exists. Now I wanna share with you a couple of ways Christians have dealt with this and these are good Christian people um, but we're not going to use them here. I'm not going to teach them to you this morning. One Christian way of handling this question has been to say, well, this pile in particular represents the curse of God on creation. In this belief, even these things are here because of human sin. You see, when Adam and Eve fell and sinned, it put like a black mark on creation so that in some way their sin even causes things like earthquakes. And that is a Christian belief, and many good brothers and sisters I know hold it. I uh, happen not to hold that because, for one, I don't find it taught exactly that way in the Bible. The Bible definitely says there's a curse on creation, but it tends to ascribe evidence of the curse to this pile and not so much this one. I, it, you, it, you're just not going to find the verse that says this earthquake happens because of sins a thousand years ago. It just doesn't quite say that. Also, scientifically, I don't see any evidence that these things weren't part of creation before humans sinned. Natural disasters and, and, and predators and prey and all this stuff, I, there's, it seems to me there's a lot of scientific evidence it was part of the creation of the natural order even before humans sinned and turned from God. And it saw, uh, while you may hold the curse of God and we're still brothers and sisters, I will not be teaching that this morning. Another Christian way to try to deal with this question is to say that that pile represents the judgment of God on sin. So the line of thinking here is that all humans are sinful. They're all sinners or, or going to and soon enough. And so even things like when a baby is born with AIDS, uh, God can judge that baby even before they've gotten around to it because he knows they're going to. And so God is always right when he judges and we have to accept that. So none of these people are innocent and deserve to live forever. That thinking has a certain logic to it, and it does answer the question. But I think uh, Jesus actually taught the opposite. I want to show you a couple of stories where Jesus encountered a natural disaster and someone with a birth defect and was asked this question, and I want you to see what he said. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking along, and he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Because of his own sin or because of his parents' sins? So see the disciples' way of thinking about this? Uh, it's obvious this guy's born blind because of sin. We just want to know whose was it? Dad's and mom's or his own later to come? But Jesus answers, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins. Jesus answered, this happened so the power of God would be seen in him. Mm, okay, we'll talk about why it did happen in a moment. I just want to show. Jesus said it wasn't judgment on sin. Okay, they encounter uh, some human evil and a natural disaster in Luke 13. Let's look at that. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices in the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people in Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And here's the natural disaster. What about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again, unless you repent, you will perish too. 
Again, we're going to get to that part where he says, you ought to be thinking more about your own life than this question. But I want to point out that Jesus clearly says God is not punishing uh, people with handicaps and natural disasters. He does then say it's what happens on the backside. It's what you think about yourself when you witness it that you ought to keep your eye on. So this morning, we are not going to say God is not loving, and we're not going to say God is not all-powerful. We're not going to say that evil doesn't exist. We're not going to explain away all of this by saying, well, it's a curse on nature or God's judgment for sin. So now it comes time to say what we are going to say. How does God justify being a loving God when he allows so much of this carnage in the world? And the answer is, I don't know. And furthermore, nobody knows. This is a mystery. This is an unexplained, unexplainable reality of our universe. Our Earth's crust is always in motion, continents grinding against one another and moving around. Our atmosphere is a swirl of hot and cold, wet and dry air masses, and we're standing on that land underneath that atmosphere. We are fragile, helpless creatures. That is the way our world is, and I don't know why. Our bodies are made of a, of a hundred trillion cells, each one controlled by maybe more than 25,000 different genes. It's a miracle that it makes, ever makes a functional human body, much less that it so faithfully makes functional human bodies so often. But sometimes that system does break down, and it does produce children with handicaps and terminal illnesses. And it is sad. But that is the way our bodies are. And I don't know why. But I also don't think that the existence of this pile means that there is no God. It might mean he's a God we really don't understand. But it doesn't mean he's not good and it doesn't mean he's not all-powerful. So I told you at the beginning of the message I would not be able to answer this in a way that would make it all go away and satisfy all and, and, and now I have kept my promise. If we want to continue to follow Jesus, we're going to have to keep our eye on what happens after these things occur and keep our eye on how we view ourselves in light of these things. One thing Jesus said was that, particularly in the case of the blind man, sometimes out of evil comes the glory of God. Now, you have all seen this before. You have all seen someone who overcomes their birth defect or someone who overcomes their accident or their disease, and in the strength that they show, the glory of God shines forth. You have seen this. I don't know if you've read the book or seen the movie uh, Unbroken that's out right now, but it's the story of a man who faces most of this pile and most of this pile 
Almost every imaginable evil that nature and humanity has to inflict, he goes through. And you know what he comes out with at the end of it? Trauma. Massive trauma. You know what his way out is? Forgiveness. Through Jesus Christ, he decides his, and testifies by his own account, the way out of freedom from all this suffering was forgiveness. And the glory of God is shown in that story. I remember when the earthquake hit Haiti. Do you remember that? It wasn't so long ago. And do you remember all the aircraft carriers and battleships that went to that island and they became uh, food distribution centers and hospitals and refugee camps? Do you realize the beauty of that moment? Those massive machines were built for war. They were built to take human lives as their primary and first function. But in this moment, when a natural evil comes, they are instantly turned into instruments of life. And all the men and women serving on those vessels become heroes who are saving lives. And it's a beautiful moment when a natural evil turns us, turns us to good and back to the glory of God. When evil happens, it's a moment for us to show the goodness God has taught us. When there's a riot in the streets of your neighborhood and you don't go loot your neighbor's store, you are showing the spirit of Jesus living inside you. And when there's a blizzard coming to your town and you don't hike up the price of a snow shovel in your store, you are showing the spirit of God living inside you. These are good responses to the mystery of evil. It also means we're going to have to learn a new question for God when this sort of evil happens because the question why isn't getting us anywhere. We just keep asking it. So I would like to suggest a new question and it's not my suggestion, it comes from scripture. I'd like to suggest this new question, how long? In the Bible, we are given Uh, The book of Psalms. In in the middle of the Bible is a book called Psalms. It's 150 prayers to teach us how to pray. And and dozens of these Psalms cry out about this stuff, uh, saying why, but there are also dozens of these Psalms that cry out with this other question, how long? You see, the Psalms seems to know that God is loving and God is all-powerful and evil exists. Psalms also seems to know they don't fit. So God, how long until you remove the one that doesn't fit? Psalm 6 says, I'm sick of heart. How long, O God, until you restore me? Psalm 13, O Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Psalm 35, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks. Psalm 74, how long, O God, will you allow our enemies to insult you? Will you let them dishonor your name forever? Psalm 89, O Lord, how long will this go on? Will you hide yourself forever? Charlie read us another one, and there's many, many more. These are the prayers of faith. When God gave us, through his inspiration, the Bible that teaches to pray, he gave us these prayers knowing that we would get tired of waiting. 
we would get tired of these things being in our creation and these things being in our creation and the way they make God so confusing and unbelievable. And God gave us these prayers and says, when you get tired of the wait, I want you to pray, how long? Because I know you're not gonna understand why I have chosen to hold these three. Now, a whole other sermon for another day is that Jesus says, all the people who do this stuff, you may want to see them destroyed, but I actually want to see them come home. That's part of the reason I'm taking so long. Another sermon for another time. But God tells us, I know you're going to get sick of waiting on that, so I want you to pray in the meantime, how long? One of you almost came close to asking, answering that. Uh, last question card here says, why doesn't God defeat the devil once and for all? So this is a fine question. I just asked, could you change it to how long? How long until God defeats the devil once and for all? And then you know he's not going to answer that question. But he gives you a promise that he will. Throughout scripture, but let's go now to the very end of the Bible, Revelation 21, where it says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? We trusted in your steadfast love. Jesus says, Are you tired, worn out, burned out by religion? I will show you how to take a real rest. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Let us pray for those who are suffering from sickness and pain. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who struggle to make ends meet. Lord, hear our prayer. For those who are sad and feel lonely and alone. Lord, for those who are judged for their skin color or accent, Lord, hear our prayer. For the victims of violence and crime, for those who stand up to evil, Lord, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for justice and mercy to embrace. By the power of the name, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Oh, I want to thank you all for those questions. I, I hope we address them with the same seriousness and sincerity with which you, you submitted them. I thank you for those questions, and I welcome them. They strengthen our faith to be faced with questions like that. And I'm appreciative of you for, for bringing those forward. Uh, we're going to continue next week. Uh, a, a lot of you submitted a question we've never had before, which is what do we do, how do we act when our children come to us and say they no longer believe in God? 
So I, uh, I feel for you to have so many who felt you know, ready to ask that. Uh, so we will address that next week. We're going to close with the benediction. The benediction is, means the good word. So it's a blessing um, said over all the people. And so the pastor raises uh, his or her hands to symbolize that good word going out over the people. And if you like, you don't have to, but you can hold your hands this way, symbolic of receiving the good word and and God's blessing. Leave that to you, but uh, let us have the benediction. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness and protect you through the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into these doors. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Go in peace.